Hello everybody and welcome to episode 3 of Europe United's Eastern Dialogue, which is a series of podcasts focusing on the many aspects and insights of Eastern European states located at the crossroads of Western Asia and European Union. My name is Ken Sweeney and I'm joined by my co-host Vika Murijan. In this episode we will be looking at the current measures in place in Armenia and Georgia as a result of the COVID-9 pandemic. With us to discuss this are columnist and political risk analyst Rafi Elliott and researcher Mariam Titikashvili. Miriam, Rafi, thank you for joining us in Eastern Dialogue. You're very welcome to episode three. Awkward times for everybody, of course, but we felt that this was an important podcast to do because uh, the situation is very well documented in most countries in Western Europe, but we felt that it was important to get the uh, news on what's happening in Eastern Europe. And before we go through that, I'd like to ask a couple of questions about what you guys do. So, Miriam, can you tell me a little bit about the organizations that you're involved in? I believe you're involved in an organization called GRASS. Yeah, thank you for this question. Yeah, I represent Georgia's Reforms Associates, that is a non-governmental policy watchdog and multi-profile think tank based in uh, Tbilisi since 2012. This is the organization that conducts research-based analysis and raises public interest and awareness on wide-ranging public policy issues. And our this our this multidisciplinary approach is really helpful in the times of COVID-19 because we try to give some recommendations to the government, to the other stakeholders in many of the uh, public policy fields. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I myself, uh, I'm uh, managing the projects that are related to uh, countries' foreign and and security policy. And in this regard, I uh, specifically design and administer project on um, disinformation issues. And this very letter uh, corresponds to my Another position at the Prague-based uh, organization, European Values Center for Security Policy, mm-hmm. that specifically uh, works uh, as studies, exposes, and gives uh, policy recommendations to a number of stakeholders uh, on the malign uh, influence of countries such as Russia, uh, China, and other uh, malign actors worldwide that uh, European Union or the US may uh, think of uh, as adversaries. So that that's basically about me i'm really happy to uh, to participate in today's discussion yeah thank you very much for joining us rafi um you're also quite a busy man hey. as well aren't you so by profession i'm a political risk analyst uh, based in yerevan in armenia and i focus mostly on uh corporate contracts into uh the south caucasus the balkans uh and eastern europe in general uh as for my work with Armenian Weekly. I'm a correspondent for Armenia as well as a a columnist where I focus on mostly uh, socioeconomic, political and, you know, uh, diplomatic issues going on uh, in Armenia. The Armenian Weekly is based in Boston. It's uh, the oldest Armenian, one of the oldest Armenian newspapers in North America. It's over a hundred and several years old, but it's it's an Armenian community newspaper for the United States and Canada. But uh, obviously they cover, uh, you know, the realities in Armenia. And since I live here, I also contribute to them. Uh, and in my capacity, I've obviously been covering uh, the coronavirus issue uh, here in Armenia. And I also have an e-health startup that uh, is going through transition phase partially because of the coronavirus. And I can't talk in too many details yet, but when it happens, you'll find out and it's going to blow you away. 
I've been reading Armenian Weekly for so many years, but I never could guess that they are based in Boston because their analysis is so interesting. So like has a local perspective uh, on what's happening. And I really love reading their articles because they are very detailed uh, and the quality is obviously um, very high. So thank you very much for what you do. Guys, could I just come in with just You're one welcome. quick question as well for the both of you? Because I know that you have European values and Armenian Weekly. I'll start. I'll go back to you, uh, Miriam. Do you, do you find that funding for your organization is difficult to gain nowadays? I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's COVID-19 out in the streets or not. That's that's always a difficult issue and diffi- difficult topic because uh, non-governmental organizations have to rely on someone else's funds mm-hmm. uh, all the time. Uh, but the situation is uh, quite difficult in case of uh, countries like Georgia, uh, and uh, in case of the organization, Georgia's Reforms Associates and many uh, my colleague organizations have the similar the challenges. Mm-hmm. In the countries like Georgia, we do not have that uh, crowdfunding um, um, uh, culture, so to say. Yeah. Um, th- therefore, we uh, heavily re- rely on uh, foreign donors. And yeah. Rafi, what about yourself? How does Armenian Weekly fund itself? Is it a, well, is it a, is it a public out? Sorry. Is it a non-profit enterprise? So Armenian, yeah, it's it's a nonprofit. It's a 501c3 in the United States. It's a nonprofit, but it's mostly funded from the Armenian community there. And you know, I'm I'm not I'm not privy to all the details mm-hmm. about their funding, but generally speaking, you know, for a, a century-old organization, they have a bit of an endowment uh, that's been built up over the years. Yeah. So I don't know the specifics about if it's more difficult now, but I don't. But it's not really relying on foreign donations to yeah. survive. Okay, guys, thanks very much for that. I mean, it's great to get insight for what you do. Um, obviously, we're here to talk about a particular subject, but it's nice to find out what you guys are up to on a daily basis. Let's get back to the uh, subject at hand. I want to start, go back to you, Miriam, uh, the situation in uh, Georgia at the moment. You're in Tbilisi, I think. Is that right? Yeah. What exactly? In, in regards mm. to, say, we all know very publicly how each country in, in Western Europe is handling the measures. Some are in serious lockdown, some are in not so serious lockdown. How is um, Georgia treating the situation at the moment? What levels are they at? Yeah, but before I maybe before I go to the measures that we have, I will just say for our um, audience that currently we have like 195 mm-hmm. cases confirmed in Georgia, mm-hmm. out of which we already have 46 who recovered and who are already at home. And we today had a very third uh, fatal case confirmed so in total we have just three so the numbers are really amazing i mean if it can be said uh, in this world can be said about the coronavirus but um yeah uh, the, the, everyone is um, asking a question how georgia has managed to do that what we have done in comparison uh, to others what was the different measures that we took uh, just to briefly say my my, uh, my exploration and my examination is that uh, we just took some measures really in advance even even before the uh, we before we had first cases confirmed so it was in um, late uh, January in the end of January that we suspended flights for example uh, with China uh, we suspended um, uh, transportation and flights to Iran as soon as there were, you know, um, 
news that Iran was also um, harshly stuck with this uh, virus issue. So uh, this is this is the main uh, main conclusion that I may have as a non-specialist, as a non-epidemiologist, mm -hmm. and as a, a non-medic that it was uh, due to the um, preliminary steps that the government took. And I think the government took all these steps because they took seriously the threat that was coming uh, and that was uh, uh, threatening not only Georgia, but the uh, entire globe. And mm -hmm. Rafi, how's the situation in Armenia? Is it any different? Uh, it's relatively similar in many ways, except that the numbers are somewhat higher. So in Armenia, as of the last the last official announcement we have, we've had 853 confirmed cases in total, of which um, of which uh, 758 are active because uh, some 87 people have recovered from the virus and have been returned to their homes. Mm -hmm. And sadly, we've had eight deaths so far, virtually all of whom have been people suffering from pre-existing uh, health mm -hmm. conditions and were over the age of 75, except for one who was in his 50s, I believe. Okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, I don't if know you if look it's at the worth numbers... mentioning, though, there have been some Armenians who've died outside of Armenia or some ethnic Armenians, about a dozen or so ethnic Armenians who are not living in Armenia passed away in various other countries, including a former minister in France, Patrick Vivedjian who sadly passed away last week, but yeah. So I was link, like looking at the numbers as of April 6th, we see that Armenia has the um, most cases in the Eastern Partnership region uh, after Ukraine and Moldova. And um, I would love to hear your opinion, Rafi, on what do you think Armenia has done differently uh, like compared to Georgia, for example, who has around 200 cases. What has Armenia done differently or badly to have so many cases confirmed? So, I mean... In effect, uh, this is a point of contention in Armenia for some people because it also has a political dimension to it. Uh, and there's, of course, there's a natural want in Armenia to compare with Georgia because we have, you know, similar cultures and histories and so on and so forth. But in reality, from my understanding, is that we have done pretty much exactly what the Georgians have done in the sense that in Armenia, they began taking measures as early as January. Armenia had just signed a visa-free regime with China, which was canceled three days or four days later back in January. Uh, the Armenian government also blocked the border with Iran as soon as the first case was discovered there on the same roughly maybe a couple of days later. So in Armenia, we had our first case confirmed on the 1st of March. And then for the next week or so, there were no new cases. And mm -hmm. then things had just begun to go back to normal, like the schools were starting to reopen. And then we got a few more cases. And then we started seeing a jump in the town of Echmiadzin. So Echmiadzin is like the Vatican of Armenia. It's a bit like the Mitzcheta of Georgia. It's a town just outside of Yerevan, where the uh, the Holy See of the Armenian Church is based. And basically, suffice to say that about two-thirds of all confirmed cases so far have been traced back to about three people, including mm -hmm. one lady who had, who had gone to Italy and returned from Italy before the quarantine measures had been in place. She came back in mid-February, and she somehow snuck through all the tests and then went to an engagement party and... 
uh, infected everybody at the engagement party. So as of like early March, <laughs> the Armenian authorities, the health, health industry basically quarantined like 600 people. And the reason why the number went up quite quickly for a while in the last two weeks of, uh, of March is just it's those people coming back with, with uh, positive test results. But that being said, when, in comparison, I mean, you know, we're still talking about a difference of 600 people, 600 cases roughly. But I mean, that's a drop in the bucket on the global scale, right? I mean, of course, of Moscow, course. Moscow gets a thousand new cases of confirmed COVID-19 a day. You know, <laughs> so I mean, we're still talking. It's important to just keep in mind that these are still relatively uh, small numbers, as tragic as uh, every one of those cases are. Yeah, but the population is also small compared to other that's, cities that's or true. countries. That's true. That's true. But, but there's you... another aspect about uh, about looking at the numbers as you know as ratios that is a bit off-putting because the coronavirus doesn't grow based as a proportion of population; it grows exponentially. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't care that your population is smaller or larger. It just grows by two and a half every week, right? So uh, you also you... to contribute, Victoria, before uh, before you pose a question, if I may. Uh, of course. What is the uh, why we do have such difference, for example, between Armenia and Georgia, who mostly shared the, and had similar uh, measures? Uh, there is another issue that is now so wide, widely discussed in Georgia, and that that concerns and relates to the. Uh, numbers of tests made. So the, 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 there is a one data that tells you how many confirmed cases countries may have, but there is another story. Are there many industries who were not tested but actually are uh, having coronavirus or maybe they are asymptomatic or so on? And I don't, I, I do not have exact numbers uh, about Armenia, but I'm sure they also have much more tests already made than Georgia. Currently, I'm, uh, I, I, we do have the numbers from third uh, of April, and our uh, national uh, disease control center told uh, told us that in total there were made 2,762 tests out of which uh, 157 was confirmed. And the opposition as well as other civil society groups and interest groups are really um, advocating in Georgia uh, uh, towards uh, towards the government as well as parliament to, to have uh, so-called aggressive testing or mass testing uh, introduced in Georgia. But in order to, to have this mass testing thing, you need to have these fast tests, which I, we still do not know uh, why the uh, government is not purchasing them. What's the problem? Are those tests really hard to get worldwide since these fast tests uh, mm-hmm. are just new, recently created and there is a high demand on that? So um, I, I don't know whether this uh, difference that we currently have between Armenia and Georgia, uh, is this a true difference or is it a result of the fact that Armenia has done much more tests and has tested much more people than Georgia, for example. So that's kind of an open question we cannot answer yet. Uh, I suppose there may be a connection between what you say 
and the numbers because let's see what happened in the United States with lack of like aggressive testing and then difference between Germany and France where there was aggressive testing and like Germany has like 10 times less cases than confirmed cases than in France because of the aggressive testing. Um, I mean, they both had lockdown, they both have measures implemented, but aggressive testing really helped to identify people and isolate them as quick as possible, uh, as quickly as possible. So um, I suppose there may be some connection, but we will be able to judge maybe in the end of of the of the crisis and lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. If, I, the, if I may uh, contribute to the point, um, as of as of yesterday, April 6th, Armenia has received enough uh, testing kits to start testing a thousand people a day. And eventually the plan is to be able to test 10,000 people a week. As of today, that's like what's been uh, going on in Armenia. Okay. And also most most quite interestingly is that Armenia has earmarked about half a million US dollars to the Armenian Center for Disease Control, uh, their bio labs to develop to, to develop the to develop the tests in house in Armenia, which is also going to help with the capacity, which is, of course, uh, those those of you who know how like what the general strategy is, and I think in any country, be it in Armenia, Georgia or or, uh, you know, the UK. Uh, it's a two-pronged strategy, right? I mean, one idea mm -hmm. is to keep people home so you slow the, the pace of the uh, uh, infection rate. And then the second one is to start as much mass testing as possible so you can pinpoint the outbreak regions uh, before they happen. And once you have enough mass testing, you can start letting people go home uh, or go out a bit more and relax some of the more uh, draconian measures. So that's okay. sort of what's going on in Armenia right now. Definitely, you it's have also one, one yeah. thing to point out, sorry, I keep talking too much, uh -huh. I know, is that <laughs> uh, we also have to see what's going to happen after Palm Sunday, uh, you know, because uh, there's a lot of people who went to church, a lot of people were touching and kissing a lot of the same uh, uh, religious items. So we all, it's important to see what's going to happen seven to ten days from now as well in terms of looking at new cases. And there were some people who wanted to open the churches by like on this day. Fortunately, it didn't happen. And I think in, you... in Armenia, it didn't happen, yeah. But um, we haven't closed them yet, even in Georgia. Well, I That's guess what I'm gonna... saying. In Georgia, it's going to be interesting to see where the curb goes in the next, uh, in the next week, uh, yeah. because it's clear that a lot of people showed up at mass. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just checked and saw that um, difference uh, of the tests made in Georgia and uh, Armenia. Per million, Armenia has tested twice as many people as Georgia. So in case of Armenia, we have like uh, 1,575 test mates per million. And in case of Georgia, that number is just um, uh, 692. So there is a huge difference. And the difference in terms of infected, uh, confirmed, case, confirmed cases of infected people may be also with, uh, a result of this uh, much better testing that uh, Yerevan has uh, done so far. Rafi, you have mentioned that uh, Armenia has already established a visa for regime with China and then it was cancelled because of the corona and with Iran uh, there, ha there has been an open border so a lot of traveling but again this has been suspended and recently like since the beginning of the year Armenia has been announcing the launch of several low-cost flights to European countries some of which like more particularly the, the flights to Italy have already started their operations 
conditions. So it seems that there are a lot of opportunities for the mobility and finally Armenians can travel abroad, which has been a long dream of, uh, of our nation. And then immediately you lose it. So how it feels like, um, how it feels like to lose it, uh, all that mobility in, uh, in an instant and what kind of measures the Armenian government has taken to restrict the mobility of Armenians or for example, to provide the return of Armenians abroad. Yeah, it's 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 um the the irony here is quite interesting. It's like uh, 2020 was going to be the year of Armenia, where everybody was, you know, we're booking flights to to spend their spend their vacations here. We had just gotten Ryanair flights to all these destinations in Europe, and we were expecting more for June and July. We had just signed the visa free regimes with Iran and China, and then, but of course. With more international exposure comes more uh, exposure to, uh, you know, deadly viruses. And that's one of the, the realities that come with globalization. To answer your question more specifically, though, uh, so far, Armenia has virtually blocked all both of its international airports. And there are almost no airlines still flying between Armenia and anywhere else. I mean, a lot of the airlines had already canceled or delayed uh, in early March and mid-March. The last few were a couple that were flying through Moscow and uh, through uh, Warsaw, which have also been canceled. But the Armenian government has also made a conceded effort to help repatriate Armenian citizens abroad. Uh, the first the first flights were done with Armenians in China because there's quite a mm -hmm. few Armenians who, who study and do business in various parts of China. Of course, China is a very big country. Uh, and of course, the lockdown there uh, greatly affected the ability for Armenians to gather around cer certain points. Or in certain cases, in the case of China, what happened is that they also they chartered Russian airlines to help evacuate the population. Armenia also evacuated uh, Armenian citizens living in Iran. And actually, the first case to enter the first case to enter Armenia c came on that one flight. The one person who had contracted the virus said he felt uh, the he had been warned at the airport by the Armenian health authorities of what the symptoms would be. And the next day he reported back to the health clinic with the symptoms. And then he and everybody else on the flight were quarantined in, an, in a disused five star hotel, mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of comical <laughs> for the people who lived there. Uh, Armenia also repaid repatriated a whole bunch of people from Italy and just just as of yesterday they repatriated I believe it's 223 uh, people from Moscow on a special charter yes. flight. Okay what about Georgia Mariam? Uh, had there been any cases any flights uh, to bring Georgians back home? Yeah uh, there have been many and uh, they're all already planned much more in the future. Uh, there are many Georgians, you know, who are working uh, or studying abroad, um, and there have been um, uh, many reports that even the existing special uh, charter flights that are made are not uh, enough for uh, are not enough to satisfy the demands of the Georgians who are living abroad. Uh, all almost each and every week, we have like two or three times flights coming from mainly Europe. It was Italy, it was Germany, uh, first and foremost, and also Spain, uh, from which we had um, quite a big number of Georgians uh, coming back um, here. There are much more people who, who, who are asking for, uh, asking for the return.
Guys, mm-hmm. could I just ask you a question in relation to your health systems? Um, I'll maybe ask Rafi first. In regards to the Armenian health system, is it a is it a full health system in that people get health the healthcare for free, or is it very similar to the American style system? No, it, it's it's a mixed system. It's it's closer to the Estonian or uh, Dutch model. So, <laughs> Ar- Armenia, you know, has a Soviet legacy when it comes to. Uh, to certain uh, uh, pub- public services, including healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, and and interestingly enough, so again, for those who are not aware, in uh, May of 2018, Armenia had a, a peaceful uh, uh, revolution where the previous somewhat autocratic uh, government was replaced by a much more uh, democratic and more uh, um, the new the new health minister uh, Arsen Tarosian. Uh, is himself a medical professional. He has worked both in the, the public and private sectors, and, he, and he's worked at the ministry prior to the job. Right. And so he had been in the midst of an entire overhaul of the system, which had somewhat begun before the revolution, to be honest. Uh, Armenia was in the process of digitizing all the healthcare uh, records and also creating... Um, so I believe all healthcare at the moment for Armenians is free for anybody under 18, those under a certain poverty level, those who have relatives who uh, are uh, military veterans. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole bunch of exceptions where people do have access to completely free health care. In other cases, it's a public-private system. So right. you can go to the public hospitals to have either free or very discounted health care, or you can go to the public ones and pay if you have private insurance. But Armenia is actually transitioning right now to, as I said, a Dutch or Estonian-style a uh, single payer healthcare model that mm-hmm. is not, let's say, like it's not like Canada, if that's necessarily specify, or it's not like the NHS in the sense that you're paying through, you're paying for it through taxes. It's an insurance program where everybody uh, mm-hmm. pitches in, but that hasn't completely been implemented yet. Now, Mariam, mm-hmm. what's it like in uh, your place? Yeah, we we are having quite an interesting um, policy. Uh, we have universal healthcare program that tries to uh, cover everyone mm-hmm. uh, and to, to tries to cover the basic, you know, expenses that uh, one may need. Uh, this is the uh, policy that they introduced in uh, in late um, 2013, if I'm mistaken. So when this new government uh, came in. Uh, and we still have this program, but each and every year, you know, this budget of universal healthcare policy is expanding and expanding. And the government is, of course, thinking now to to make this program more targeted for those groups who are more vulnerable, who have lower um, social and economic uh, uh, conditions. But currently, it is uh, it is still the same. It, it tries to uh, encapsulate everyone in one policy, uh, and government does uh, cover all the expenses uh, that are related to the uh, healthcare of our citizens. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Okay. Uh, but in fact, uh, according to the Global Health Security Index, I guess Georgia's and Armenia's healthcare system are the closest one to the EU average uh, among all these term partnership states. So uh, again, a question to both of you, because we're discussing the health systems. Do you think the healthcare system in your country was ready to for such a shock? And then, like, can you explain uh, such a different impact specifically on these two countries? So how the health system, healthcare, hospitals were affected, um, whether countries are being able to handle that. Yeah, 
that's an interesting question, but um, I, I, I don't think that there was any country uh, on this planet that would be uh, would have been, uh, you know, uh, prepared for this outbreak because this outbreak obviously extends uh, to, to, to anything that one may have uh, thought about. Uh, up until now, the only reason why Georgia's healthcare system is uh, handling well the outbreak is the low numbers and low um amount of uh, people who've been infected with the virus, of course. But this is uh, the, the, the nightmare that I'm having each and every day, that if we have uh, quite a rapid uh, increase uh, of uh, cases uh, uh, positive for uh, COVID-19, I don't, I don't know how, how the system will then uh, cope with this outbreak. As for now, as I said, we've been quite successful, and that success has uh, has been a result of a quite a great job uh, that our National Disease Prevention Center has been doing so far. And the great uh, specialists who've been doing um, this, you know, deep epidemic uh, research. So uh, each and every person that was infected and found identified with COVID-19, then this team of National Disease Center, you know, we, they were trying to reach out everyone who was in contact with the infected person. So I think that this uh, part of the this part of our healthcare system, and specifically those doctors uh, who are dealing with these infectious uh, diseases, uh, they have done a great job. David, what about Armenia? Uh, it's really on the same uh, parallels. I mean, when you say how ready can they be? Obviously, we're not expected to be able to have a to be able to fully stop a once-in-a-century pandemic that we've never seen before. Uh, but in terms of preparedness, obviously, I think most, you know, one of, one of, the, uh, one of the, uh, the main things that uh, public health systems or, or you know, the, the disease prevention centers around the world are expected to be able to deal with is the potential scenario of a pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So... In that context, I would say that the Armenian authorities, I mean, some people have argued that they took too long to, to start monitoring and to start uh, implementing measures. But again, now we're finding out that the visa, may, the, 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 the disease may have been in Italy earlier than we thought it was. So, I mean, mm -hmm. that's a bit of a unnecessary criticism to make. But what's been really interesting is that once the authorities had become aware, the response has been very quick very um very decisive and also very uh mendable in the sense that the authorities have been following the situation quite uh, closely and have been you know ch changing their policies to meet the current situation as it progressed for example uh, in, in terms specifically of healthcare armenia went armenia at the outbreak had the capability of dealing with up to 2000 cases of the virus, including, mm -hmm. and by the way, it's also worth pointing out that of the uh, 750 or so cases that are currently active in Armenia, about 90% of those people are either asymptomatic or do not have any breathing problems. So those people are in the hospital anyway, but they don't actually need to be there. So once mm -hmm. we reach the 2000 number, the solution was going to be, okay, well, if you don't have to be in the hospital, you can go self-quarantine. So even at that point, we were never in such a danger, let's say. But the authorities have also um, managed their time very effectively, because if there's one thing that's been made clear from experience in China, 
has been that time is of the essence, right? As the faster you you uh, you react, the faster you slow it, the faster you start mass testing, the quicker you can sort of solve the issue. So the uh, Armenian government, uh, one of the things they did, which is somewhat similar to what China did, is that they built a a uh, a new ward. You know, seventy, I think, forty three new wards uh, in a. Uh, in a uh, composite structure outside of the uh, Armenian Infectious Disease Hospital in Nork in Yerevan. And they built that in about seven days, which is quite impressive. And then they converted four more hospitals to deal strictly with, uh, you know, COVID-19 related cases. And they've begun a program of retraining a lot of other medical professionals to deal with infection, infectious diseases, as well as the, the, the graduating class, class from the uh, medical university. So they've been hedging their bets and they've been taking the time that was allotted to them to prepare for an increase in cases if, God forbid, that ends up happening. Um, and another interesting side effect, which was not really considered, but uh, and you see sort of parallels with other places in the world, is that the medical system is actually, uh, you know, one of the big concerns with the, um, you know, one of the reasons why we always talk about flattening the curve is that a lot of the potential deaths will typically come from other people who uh, have non-COVID related diseases who are not treated because the hospitals are overloaded. But because everybody's at home, you have less car crashes, you have less, uh, you know, whatever, gun violence and things like that. So they're not so that a lot of the other hospitals are noticing a decrease in non-COVID related uh, cases, uh, emergency room uh, applications. Yeah. Interesting. Rafi uh, and Mariam, of course, uh, we are seeing that besides the health crisis we're also following in some kind of democratic crisis as uh, publications used to like um, are calling it very often in a way that uh, freedom of information, freedom of expression and access to the critical information is in danger in many countries. Um, and uh, as looking at the reports, we see that uh, Georgia, Moldova and Ukraine have ensured their freedom of expression in their countries during the COVID-19 crisis. In Armenia, uh, the assessment say says that it has been partially ensured because of the adopted ban on publishing and sharing any information on the outbreak that does not come from the official sources, um, thus restricting journalist reporting. So Rafi, can you please elaborate on this ban and tell us what were the reasons for such a decision and whether it was justified or it was just a way to, you know, as the government sometimes wants to, to exaggerate and to limit people's sure. Um, freedom? Sure. So it's always, you know, there's that famous, uh, uh, there's that famous, so just just to, to, to clarify, in the case of Armenia, what happened was that uh, as, as part of the emergency, so uh, Ar Armenia actually had uh, uh, declared a state of emergency uh, as far back as March 15th, I believe, right? And, and Georgia in turn did so in on March 20th, right? And um, and so part of part of the um, part of the emergency uh, the the emergency uh, state of emergency declaration is that the the government has the right to clamp down on certain media for the sake of public safety and security, right? And of course, this is you can see this uh, all across the world uh, as governments are talking about 
just cur curtailing media media freedoms, but also just as strictly as saying telling people to stay home or close businesses and things like that, or tracking people by phone. Uh, you know, uh, and, th and those are very uh, real concern. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Frederick Hayek has the famous speech, uh, the famous quote where he says, "Emergencies have always been the pretext on which the safeguards of individual liberty have eroded." And it's true. I mean, every time a government will uh, will put in emergency measures for the the case, the sake of public safety, they, they tend to uh, extend them. Uh, indefinitely until the population essentially gets used to it. Uh, but in the case of Armenia, essentially the original directive was that no no social media information about COVID-19 could be shared without a link to an official source. And the idea was to curb, you know, it was curb the sharing of fake news, which is very um, much an issue in this part of the world where people will believe anything on the internet and they have it like a natural tendency to want to believe conspiracy theories. So you had people, particularly people who, uh, who have ties to the previous regime were sharing information about how uh, COVID-19 was, you know, developed by George Soros and uh, <laughs> how the government was, was failing at this and doing that. And, you know, they're trying to scare people by saying the real number is much worse. Um, but also you had, you know, people sharing remedies like, oh, if you feel a cough and you drink lemon juice, you'll be okay and things like that. So the idea was initially to stop that kind of stuff. And then the government actually uh, fined two media companies that did not use, did not cite official sources. So it was really specifically that you had to, if you were mentioning health directives about COVID-19, you had to cite official sources. And then the, then there was a lot of pushback, both from media in Armenia and also the um, um, uh, Reporters Without Borders. And then Armenia basically just dropped that part of the legislation altogether. So it was never re really implemented. Uh, and you know, if you're asking me if was this really a measure to help control the media i mean if it was this was like the you know the the most toothless attempt i've ever seen the the government in its measures has been very careful to point to the fact that this is really strictly covid-19 related they didn't as in the case of azerbaijan for example where the the president uh declared that uh raiding uh, the offices of opposition parties and arresting opposition leaders was necessary for public health you know, none of that happened in Armenia. It was very, very strictly, and the, the legislation was written to specifically mention COVID-19, and it was removed as soon as there was opposition to it. The same also can be said about a similar concern over the loss of individual liberty, which a government planned to have to implement a data mapping system that tracked uh, the 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 cell phones of people with confirmed cases of COVID-19 so that they can be able to do like a transmission tree and find out who these people had interacted with over the, next, the last 15 days and quarantine them as well. That became a big issue as well. But the, the eventual legislation that went through was very watered down and very specific about how the data was going to be handled and all of that. So I don't know. It, was it a necessary measure of time? We'll tell. But they really... It does not come off to me as an excuse for an authoritarian government to come up. And in regards, guys, to, say, the European Union, because obviously there's loads of disinformation about, you know, how 
uh, influential the European Union is and so on. Has the European Union um, supported the EAP during the outbreak? Uh, maybe start with yourself, Mariam. Have you seen any um, signs of that? Yeah, um, I mean, it was quite, uh, I will just comment with few sentences on what Rafi was uh, talking about. Georgia has also seen quite a, a big wave of disinformation in COVID-19. And it was uh, such, a, uh, such a sad story to see the narratives that our adversaries were promoting here. One of them was to, uh, to show how the uh, European Union um, is not united at all. And they were bringing up the uh, Italy's case when Italy was was uh, supported by the by the uh, by Russia and China instead of the other EU member states. So the, this narrative then uh, then was you know reused um, uh, in the case of Georgia as well, and uh, many uh, adversaries and many pro Kremlin uh, disinformation outlets or interest groups were uh, promoting this narrative that you know the West is not going to um, help Georgia in this fight because they themselves are in need of help and they are not helping their uh, the, the, their neighbors and friends inside the European Union. Mm -hmm. But but later on, I guess uh, the European Union, as it is a big bureaucracy thing going on in the year, they just needed few, I mean, few weeks to decide on uh, how they were going to uh, help out uh, the countries like Georgia, um, uh, as well as other uh, Eastern Partnership participating countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so for now, uh, the European Union Union decided to uh, allocate uh, 90 uh, uh, million uh, euros for only Georgia, but in total, in case of uh, in case of Eastern Partnership, it's 1.3 uh, uh, 1.3 uh, million. Uh, uh, for the for the for the grants solely for the civil society organizations mm -hmm. uh, inside the Eastern Partnership, but the whole package uh, within which they will help out all the other countries is, is is much bigger. But as for the Georgia, the they will spend like twenty million uh, euros in new emergency allocations, uh, and seventy million uh, will be uh, of uh, ongoing programs for for crisis response and access to multiple uh, uh, regional. Uh, funds will be uh, reopened and with these funds they will definitely support Georgia's health system in the fight against virus uh, they will also support the people who are who will be mostly affected by the crisis uh, and there will be a package also to help out uh, Georgia in its overall social uh, socioeconomic um, impact that uh, that it may have from the coronavirus. And that's actually another issue that that is a great uh, greatly debated in Georgia. Even though uh, the government has been quite uh, quite uh, fast, quite responsive, and uh, even at this point successful in the fight against coronavirus, and in, in case of flattening the curve. We did a great job, definitely, mm -hmm. uh, but we do not have that precise anti-crisis plan in case of the uh, economics. And as everything is under lockdown currently, I mean, we will have uh, drastic uh, implications on our social and economic environment in post-crisis uh, period, but we do not see uh, a, a government 
having uh, saying confidently what they are going to do in order to help out uh, those who will uh, who will be um, without uh, jobs due to this uh, coronavirus uh, crisis and what they are going to do with with the businesses be it a small and medium or large businesses who will drastic who are already drastically uh, influenced negatively of course uh, from this crisis yeah mm. it's an issue well, everywhere European- across over europe all over europe um, nations are wondering what to do with businesses, uh, including self-employed people as well. And the European Commission also will redirect uh, the use of existing uh, instruments, which is like worth 700 million euros to help mitigate this economic and social impact uh, of the of coronavirus in the Eastern Partnership countries. That is in addition to the 140 million help um, allocated to purchase medical devices, uh, again, in the Eastern Partnership countries. So I guess it's really like... It's a huge amount of help uh, given uh, to our countries. Um, has has there been uh, questions about the European Union assistance in 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 uh, in Armenia at all? No, I mean not not that I've seen. But again, you know, I've been in my uh, I've been in my flat since mm-hmm. uh, March 10th, so I haven't really asked other people on the street. <laughs> but um, having said that, no, I mean uh, as Mariam uh, suggested, I mean it the the. Um, the level of help has been quite similar for Armenia. I mean, Armenia was given access to a $30 million regional uh, slush fund for medical devices, personal equipment, you know, such as ventilators, lab masks, mm-hmm. uh, goggles, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're also offering training for medical staff, for labs and so on, because Armenia, as I mentioned, is basically switching over everybody, every available medical staff, including retired uh doctors and so on to train them for infectious disease containment and also just generally like some infrastructural funds for the medical system but they're also helping you know there's some uh, 13 million euros in support for armenian uh, smes mm-hmm. and businesses in general another uh, 30 million in terms of uh you know like low or zero interest loans with uh, working capitals and guarantees access to credit lines and all of that kind of stuff and of course there's also been some quite a deal a, a large number of funds have been allocated to mitigating the social effects of, of essentially the battle against covid-19 the economic effects have social effects as well of course like you have a lot of vulnerable members of society that need help mm-hmm. and the armenian government of course has been doing uh, essentially what armenia has done is when they ordered you know businesses to close the, they immediately announced emergency, emergency no credit loans to help the businesses pay their uh, their employees for the next month to help them pay off the um, the rent, um, keep the lights on, and so on. Mm-hmm. And then they basically implemented a, a temporary uh, universal basic income. So they're offering money to essentially everybody who's been unemployed from the situation. Uh, and there's also money being given to uh, expectant mothers and so on. So the Armenian government has been pretty quick to try to mitigate the issue. Of course, this is going to be economically disastrous for Armenia. The the economy had just seen two years of robust growth after 10 years of very sluggish recuperation from the 2008 uh, Great uh, Recession. Uh, we were expecting to see eight nine percent GDP growth this year, and now it's been uh, downgraded to one uh, percent, or the, the uh, Asian Development Bank put it at two percent. So, if you're if the question is about 
any lack of trust in the EU support for Armenia. I have seen none. I think the European Union has done a pretty good job of both being there for Armenia and letting it know that they were there. The the real concern is, uh, let's say, the support of the Eurasian Union for Armenia, because, again, for those who aren't aware, in 2013, Armenia had completed and and gotten ready to sign a association agreement with the European Union as part of the uh, uh, Eastern Partnership. And about a month before it was supposed to be signed, Russia strong-armed Armenia into joining this newly formed Eurasian Union, mm -hmm. which was supposed to be a counterpart to the EU, but it's probably more of a, um, you know, a, a, an ambition from Moscow. But since 2015, when, our, when the organization officially came into being, other than uh, annual meetings of state leaders, and certain agreements, very little has actually been done in terms of creating a functional uh, union with, uh, you know, with with with, uh, with laws across countries that that sort of match each other. Mm -hmm. And right now, I mean, the Eurasian Union essentially, you know, there have been calls between leaders, but very much no effect whatsoever. And our main issue has actually been uh, with Russia, who, you know, is trying to raise the price of gas. Uh, Armenia imports 80% of its gas from Russia, by the way. Uh, and with the complete collapse of the price of gas, Armenia is trying to raise it. Uh, sorry, Russia is trying to raise it at a time when Armenians probably need the gas uh, price relief. <laughs> so that's kind of been an issue. And I think that it's bothered people in the wrong way. Um, but yeah. That is how they see friendship, actually. I mean, the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird I friendship. Think, <laughs> you know. Yeah, let's just try to conclude the, the podcast by saying in very briefly because we are over time already what predictions can we make for the next couple of weeks in in georgia and in armenia respectively and uh what do you expect uh, what do you think uh, we'll be able to flatten the curve yeah thank thank you uh, thank you for this interesting discussion that we had as a summary i would say that uh the information that we have from the uh, healthcare uh, system representatives in case of georgia they say that we, we will definitely be able to flatten the curve and the maximum uh, amount of cases that they forecast we will have uh, does not exceed uh, 2,000 cases. So if their prediction is true, and uh, but this case uh, nobody um, nobody can say definitely you know anything, especially taking into consideration the church case that we have in Georgia that rituals are still held and communions are uh, still held with the same spoon. Uh, nobody nobody knows. But if if they are able to uh, to contain uh, this um, increasing rate and if we are able to have no more than two thousand cases then we will definitely be able to uh, I mean our healthcare system will be able to handle this outbreak and I think we will uh, need like two months to uh, finish this uh, uh, drastic situation and crisis that we are also having in Georgia. Uh, yeah, so Armenia has been seeing a uh, regular decrease in the number of new cases over the last five, four or five days, really. Uh, and of course, you know, the effects, the effects of the uh, stay-at-home orders usually can be seen about 10 to 15 days later. So that's probably what we're starting to see. The government in Armenia seems to be optimistic that, you know, we're, we're on the hump at this point. But the, for the sake of caution, they want to extend the stay-at-home order for another 10 days and keep it strict for the time being. And my prediction would be that 
by the end of April, you would have the start of a return to some sort of normality. Although I, I should point out that one uh, key element in Armenia's relative success right now, actually it's an astounding success, let's be honest, uh, has been this the level of transparency and, and the level of transparency that Armenians have not really been used to before. I can just imagine um, before the revolution, we would see a lot of uh, a reaction that would be similar to a lot of the other autocratic ex-Soviet countries. I mean, if you see like in Russia where they pretended that the virus didn't exist for a while or in Belarus where they were suggesting drinking vodka and playing hockey or, uh, you know, Turkmenistan where they made the word coronavirus illegal. Mm -hmm. uh, in Armenia, the, uh, the health, the prime minister and the health minister were candid and transparent from the beginning in what they were doing. Both the prime minister and the, tr and the health minister gave daily live briefings from on Facebook Live from their offices. And they were basically just telling the truth. This was the reality. These were the new numbers. This is what we were doing. Just uh, just this morning, the, pres the Prime Minister of Armenia had a three-hour-long Facebook Live session where he just answered questions from people writing to him on Facebook. To, wow. you know, And this, cr this created an unheard-of sense of uh, trust in the system, which Armenians for... Uh, obvious history of having been invaded for, by, you know, communists and, mm -hmm. and Ottomans and everything else have, uh, you know, as a result, have, generally speaking, have a very low level of trust in the authorities. But now you're seeing the sense of uh, public trust and also public solidarity returning. Like you see people on the line are making an effort telling other people, you know, stay home. It's not about you. It's about all of us. And so that's it's a really interesting uh, perspective, you know. Uh, historically, uh, army the sense of patriotism in Armenia often came from the uh, the army because the army and the central bank of Armenia were the two government institutions that were widely trusted by all. And it's interesting to see that now the third one would be well the public health system. So it's very nice to hear this. <laughs> Thank you very very much, well, you, Maria. You, you, you agree with me? I mean, you you grew up here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to keep my neutrality, <laughs> uh, but um, but, but I completely out. agree. But I completely agree that uh, although we complain a lot on what's happening, there are some mistakes. Of course, not everything is perfect after the revolution, but overall, the development and the changes it has been enormous. And uh, people, especially young people, notice that, and that's that's very very positive. But just to mention, it's not just happening, you know, in countries like Armenia. Developing countries are even. You know, it's happening everywhere. I mean, Ireland had a health system that was considered defunctional. Um, and overnight, almost, there has been tremendous um, faith in the health system in Ireland. So I think, as, as you said, Rafi, there is a tremendous amount of solidarity, um, which has automatically kicked in, I think, across Europe. So um, if anything may come across, come out of this crisis, it's uh, probably people can hopefully hang on to that. And remember that there was a deeper understanding um, of that, and maybe that might be a good thing. We have we are prone to forgetting things like that. Unfortunately, we pick up our mobile phones and get back to normality. So hopefully, um, we we'll learn a little bit from that. Um, so guys, Although maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing. Yes, I mean, yeah, if, yeah. If, uh, you know, the, the sooner this 
I don't want to stand up like the you know the the, the Spanish flu where my grandfather and my dad yeah. would talk about it. I wanted to be that that annoying spring where I had to be at home yeah, for sure, twenty sure. days. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There has there has to be a fine balance. I understand what you mean. Um, Rafi, Mariam, thanks very much for joining us today. I think um, Vika, you just wanted to say something about a campaign there created. Um, hashtag prepare EAP for health, and that's a, the number four health, isn't it? Maybe you can explain that a little bit. Yes, uh, this campaign has been created by the Eastern Partnership of Civil Society Forum. Uh, it aims to raise awareness of the EU stakeholders to the needs of six Eastern Partnership countries and their civil societies in order to fight the outbreak of COVID-19, while providing Eastern Partnership citizens also with alternative information about the about the outbreak of COVID-19 and its impact on um, the fundamental rights of people, plus on economy and social security. So uh, if listeners need more information on what's happening in our country, Entries, please, um, you're welcome to check the campaign by the um, by the Eastern Partnership CSF and and follow the news and, uh, and stay healthy uh, and stay at home for um, now. The hashtag is hashtag Prepare EAP for Health campaign, and it's the let it's number four, as in the four health that's in the hashtag there. So we we'll put it up on the uh, on our on our podcast information as well. Uh, so that people can get, and we we'll do the link. The um, there's a website link as well, I'm sure, so we can put that in as well and make sure that people are aware of that. Thank you very much for coming, and um, Rafi and Mariam, and uh, I hope you guys um, are safe. Yeah, thank Bye. you, thank you for inviting us, and wish everyone uh, to stay positive, healthy, and mentally balanced. Uh, and wash your hands for 20 seconds. <laughs> yes. yes, sing happy birthday in Armenian. <laughs> Guys, our guest today was Rafi Elliott and, and Miriam Titaskarsvili. Um, thank you very much for joining us. I think we've um, had a very interesting uh, conversation. We went way over time, but I thought it was well worth it. Um, normally, I'd be cutting the strings on this one, but we're going to let that run um, quite longer than we usually do because it was quite interesting. Um, it was episode three of Eastern Dialogue. You can join us on europeunited.eu that's our website we're also on twitter at europeunited.eu and facebook at europeunited.eu thank you to my co-host Vika Murajan who as always has put together a fantastic show we'll see you soon and um, hopefully we'll be out of lockdown or lock in or lock out or whatever the hell we call it wherever you are so take care guys as Rafi said wash your hands keep yourselves clean and we'll talk to you real soon bye bye